Good morning, everybody. Good morning, friends online. It's good to be with you all. Um, this morning's talk is called God of the Disillusioned. And we'll start with a prayer that we can pray together um, that should be projected. So pray with me. Be with us, O oh God. We search, we fear, we scatter. Be with us, O oh God. We ache, we rage, we fight disillusionment about our work, our faith, and our world. Be with us, O oh God. We struggle to come to persevere, to believe. Be with us, God of the disillusioned. We need you. We cry out to you for presence and help. We are silent with longing. Be with us, O oh God. Amen. I was talking to one of my children on the phone the other day. He had applied for a job that he really wanted, and he did not get it. And he was feeling pretty down and me along with him. And a few hours later, he got another phone call for another job interview that he had applied to. And in that moment, there was hope again. What I want to talk about this morning is the space between the phone calls. Those long minutes, sometimes weeks, hours, years, where there is no hope, where the oxygen has been sucked out of the room, where contrary to the psalmist's promise, the darkness has seemed to obscure the light. So I was talking to a good friend and leader in this community recently, um, and he has been attending the church for probably close to 20 years now. And my friend was planning to get together with his prayer group, long-term friends, who he's been friends with uh, since almost the beginning, but they hadn't really spent much time together during COVID. Um, and so I knew about this, and I saw him after he had had this time with his friends. And I said, so how was it? How was your time together? And he said, oh my gosh, it was so sweet. It was like we didn't miss a beat. But he said, um, there was one word that came up when everybody shared. So they spent time, each person catching up and sharing and being vulnerable. And, and he said, the one word that came up the most from each person who shared, as you can guess from the title of the talk, was disillusion. They might have said they were disillusioned with our country, disillusioned with people, disillusioned with politics. I have talked with so many folks who share some version of this sentiment, the combination of George Floyd and those that came before and those that came since and our tepid response to climate change and whatever is happening with jobs that employers can't 
find employees and employees uh, want better wages and better treatment in general. And what you and I thought would be a few week inconvenience with this thing called coronavirus has upset all of life for almost two years. And while this is happening, many folks are asking questions about their faith. And one article said that the only part of the church today that is growing is the evangelical church, but not by numbers of people who are professing faith in Jesus and not by numbers of people who are attending church. It is growing as more and more people are identifying as Christian as republicanism. Um, as republicanism seems to be conflating with Christianity in a way that it hasn't since Christianity became the official uh, religion in the Roman Empire under Constantine. So this morning, I want to consider life for my son after the first phone call and before the second. And for that matter, we don't always get the second phone call. We don't always get the job offer. Sometimes it appears that our prayers aren't answered at all or not in our timing or not in the way that we wanted. So to do this, I want to consider two Bible stories, kind of two Bible eras or Bible periods, um, and ask what invitations there might be for us. But I'm going to start with a nursery rhyme. So before I do this, I have to ask, um, why are nursery rhymes so sad? Like, we sing these soothing little songs to our babies. I would sing, rockabye baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And then I get to that part. Every time when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And I'm like, I sort of want to stop singing because down will come baby, cradle and all. And I, why am I singing this? And who puts a baby in a cradle on the top of a tree? And it... <laughs> turns out that Mother Goose has a little bit of a dark side. And many of these uh, little rhymes are cultural critiques, and some of them are quite ominous. Okay, it is Humpty Dumpty that has haunted me for years and years. So Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So what was so bad? This was written in the 1800s before Lewis Carroll popularized it. There's all kinds of theories. Nobody seems to agree about what conflict was happening at the time. But what was going on, right, that all the king's horses and all the king's men uh, couldn't put Humpty together again. So I don't have answers for why we sing our babies these sad little stories, but I do think they do a good job of portending reality. I love you, sweetie, but not everything in your life will be able to be fixed. So the first Bible story or period is the Exodus. We have this newly formed Semitic people, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah gives birth to Isaac, who marries Rebecca, who gives birth to Jacob, who marries Rachel and Leah, and Rachel gives birth to Joseph, who helps Pharaoh in a time of famine and saves Egypt and saves 
his family, and so the whole family relocates to Egypt. They have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and over the generations, a potential, they become a potential numeric threat to a new pharaoh who knows nothing about Joseph. So Pharaoh enslaves the Hebrew people. Joseph's children who once sat at Pharaoh's table are now slaves to a new leader, and they cry out for help to God, and God hears. Now, I have preached this many times over the years, and it makes for such good preaching. God's people are in bondage, and God hears. God cares for the oppressed. God sees our suffering. And while I believe that God cares, Scripture says that the Israelites were enslaved for 430 years. And that detail could change the preaching. God rescues becomes God will rescue your great, 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 great grandchildren. I do believe that God rescues, and I believe that God has rescued me in my life many times and in very real ways but it is important for us to remember that while Moses' sister celebrates their deliverance and we have Miriam on our back wall dancing with her timbrels, which brings me uh, endless joy, honestly, but there were likely several generations of disillusioned people crying out to God. The second story is called the exile. So we have the exodus and the exile. And the exile is one of the most pivotal uh, moments or themes of the Old Testament. So God has delivered Israel from bondage and the people settle in the land of promise and it is a land that's flowing with milk and honey and God gives them judges or military leaders to help them and they see other nations have a king so they say, give us a king, O God, and kings work for a while, and then there's fighting within the Hebrew community and civil wars that divide the north from the south, and we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom gets taken over by Assyria, and the southern kingdom survives, but 150 years later is taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and that is called the exile. So what this means is that this magnificent temple that was built in Solomon's time was destroyed. What this means is everything that they held dear has been destroyed, that the promise of a future has been destroyed. Seventy years later, and a new leader and Israel, the people of God are going home, and they're rebuilding their temple, and they are rebuilding their lives. But the temple won't be as good as the first temple. And rather than having their own rulership, they'll be under Persian rulership with King Cyrus, but they'll have more freedom. And this is what it says. As the foundation of the new temple is being laid, this is in Ezra chapter 3, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was being laid. 
but many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this new temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. It was like our first Sunday back in person after a year and a half. It was joyful and we celebrated, but not everyone was with us and COVID was still happening and our service was quite diminished and we were all wearing masks and where's our coffee and bagels and why aren't a hundred kids running around bumping into us, making us crazy like they're supposed to. We are celebrating and we're grieving, the writer of Ezra says, and it's hard to tell the difference. This is life, right? We celebrate and we grieve. And the question for us is what does any of this invite us to do as we sit in this time of disillusionment? How can it instruct us? What is God saying to you? What is God saying to me through these stories? So I want to suggest a few things. We'll see what you think. Number one, we're invited to ask ourselves, how much is our faith dependent on good things in our lives versus seeing God? in all situations. So I wonder if maybe we can see the difference between seeing God in our lives and maybe what some people would call praise reports. Um, and so I'm not sure if I'm making a fair distinction and I'll qualify, this is the language, um, how I've seen it used in some of the cultures that I've been part of. So praise reports in my past would have included getting the job, winning the battle, whatever that battle is, being healed, being delivered, uh, forgiving someone, which makes sense, right? We are endlessly grateful. We're endlessly grateful for those good things, those gifts of God in our lives. But I think the danger of a praise report faith, as I'm defining it, is that we are training ourselves to only praise God when things go our way. Praising God where I see God moving might look something like weeping with someone you love as you sit together in your shared loss. Or noticing your heart open as one of your children suffers, but at the same time, you notice a crescent moon with one star that seems to be calling out. Everything's gonna be okay. Where I see God moving would include our praise reports, jobs founds, recoveries of all kind, forgiveness, healing, but it's expansive. It's Paul's giving thanks, always. It's holding space for our human complexities and for God's vastness. Perhaps the psalmist sentiment, even darkness can't obscure 
my light might be referring to those beautiful and sorrowful moments of finding God in our grief. Growing up, for example, when someone died, we did our mourning together. It's called sitting shiva. We found God in our moments of storytelling and remembering. We found God in our moments of surprising laughter, and we found God in our moments of sneaking off to a corner to hug and cry with someone. If our faith depends on good outcomes, we will eventually have a faith crisis. And maybe that's okay, maybe that's all part of our finding God. Number two, we ask the question, what is the good news then? What is the good news if God doesn't answer the question of evil? I think this is a question that we ask all the time, right? What is the good news? If God isn't answering the question of evil, what was Jesus proclaiming? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is among us? In the Gospels, Jesus heals people. He heals a lot of people, but not every person he saw, not always in the same way. And in the end, people died. And Christians suffered. The Gospels themselves were written to different communities of believers decades after Jesus died. They were written um, pastorally to real people living real life. So followers, followers of Jesus could be at odds with other Jewish, Jewish sects at that time. They were definitely at odds with their Roman oppressors. So in Mark, when they're talking about John's beheading and Jesus' suffering, that would have been a nod to the people who were facing their very own real dangers at that time. The good news that Jesus proclaimed was that the kingdom of God was among them, that the kingdom of God was near. So with all the critiquing that Jesus was doing and all the reforming of systems of his day, Jesus main message was himself. In other words, Jesus was saying, there is nothing between you and God, no ritual, no sacrifice, no artifice, no correct way of belief. Just if you climb the highest mountain, I'll be there. If you make your bed in the sea, I'll be there. We take this for granted sometimes. But Jesus is saying this to people who have to travel great distances to get to the temple, people who have to pay money to purchase a bird for sacrifice, people who will likely never be religious elite. Jesus is saying you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to buy anything, sacrifice anything. It's the opposite. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of the garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them, still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast 
that a woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. It is God's love being worked out and poured out on this world. David gave a teaching once. It was a long time ago. He was in seminary at the time. I remember it because it was one of the few times that uh, someone got a, a preacher got a standing ovation in the history of our church. And it was great because he was videoing it for his preaching class. Um, but he painted a picture of the Spirit lavishly being poured out at Pentecost. And by the end of his preaching, we could feel the Holy Spirit. We could feel it dripping and, and oozing and pouring out on all creation. The good news is that we are invited into God's love and we are invited to become God's love. And finally, number three, our stories invite us to understand that disillusionment is just a part of life, is a part of our human story. So Richard Rohr calls it order, disorder, reorder. Walter Brueggemann, who is a beloved theologian, calls it disorientation, disorientation, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Um, these fathers of the faith invite us to see that we are always evolving, right? What is order today becomes disorder tomorrow. And this is true about our circumstances in life, our belief systems, our consciousnesses, how we experience life. And the gift of disorder is that it invites and it necessitates change. There is an opportunity to evolve, to expand our participation in the cosmos, to feel connectedness to everything. And we don't choose it. We don't choose disorientation. We don't choose disorder. We don't choose the crises that would bring them on. Like, who would? But inevitably, we are thrust into them. Joseph's favorite family become slaves, the Davidic kingdom, the golden years become exile. And I honestly think that what happens to you and what happens to me, how we are formed in these exilic times matters. I've observed two things in this time of global crisis in our community. I've seen on the one hand that people seem to have less energy, less bandwidth to do anything, to respond to life. Just living requires more for many of us. So doing things that normally seem like things we value, uh, that seem like um, a part of life we believe in, like volunteering, seems harder in this season. Sometimes just going out, doing something extra can seem exhausting. But I also hear about people doing things 
that are bringing them lives, running marathons, mountain biking, writing poetry, taking art classes, photographing nature, forming prayer groups, basically saying, I am choosing life, I am choosing joy, I am choosing my soul, I am finding God and Jesus and how I understand the kingdom in this hour. I think in the end, our invitation is to understand how we are impacted in this season and to let that be real, to allow ourselves to feel and to respond kindly and compassionately to ourselves. But we have an invitation as well to muster the energy to ask ourselves what could be life-giving, what could buoy our spirits. David, who features prominently in this morning's teaching for some reason, shared last week in a staff meeting, he said, I haven't been listening to the to podcasts that I usually listen to for the last few weeks. I've been watching Marvel movies instead. It wasn't a prescription for everyone, and it wasn't his long-term plan, if I understood that correctly. <laughs> but it was what his soul needed at that moment. So we ask ourselves, what is life-giving? Maybe it is walking away from something in this season, or maybe it is walking toward something. So let me end with this. I always go back to Psalm 139, that if I climb the highest mountain, you'll be there. Like, what if, in the end, it isn't about us? What if no matter what we do, God being true to God's self or God's nature, God can't stop chasing us. Now, it's not that I don't think it's worthwhile for us to try to live into the principles that Jesus taught. I think it's absolute invitation of our life for all of us. It is what gets me out of bed every morning. I pray that all of us would always become more transformed into Jesus' likeness, that we would be more kind, more just, more generous, more loving of our neighbors, God willing of ourselves. But, and this is the big but, but it, what if no matter what we did or do or how we live, what if it has no impact on God in the sense that no matter what, God will keep being God? And God will keep loving us, and God will keep pouring out God's Spirit on us, even in our disillusionment, whether or not we utter the word Jesus. What if God can't even for a moment not be God? Amen.